What's up, Military Millionaires? I'm your host, David Prey, together with my beautiful co-host, Alexander the Great. And today we are blessed with Brian Feraldi, which is a guest that I interviewed as a co-host on the VP Money Show a few months ago. And, uh, well, I tried to ask a pointed question about uh, P.E. ratios involving Tesla, and he actually had a lot of really good like technical analysis and, and logic behind some of how that all played out. And I was like, okay, well, you just blew my mind and showed that I don't know nothing about individual stocks. So you should be on our show so other people can, well, ho- hopefully learn things, but also feel like they don't know anything because that's always fun. So uh, he wrote the book, Why the Stock Market or Why Does the Stock Market Go Up in April? And he's got uh, like three times as many reviews as I do already. So he's doing something right. And uh, yeah, so we're, we're going to dig into it. And uh, I guess, Brian, why don't you give a little bit of background and then we'll we'll rip apart the Tesla argument and see where this goes. Welcome to the Military Millionaire Podcast, where we teach service members, veterans, and their families how to build wealth through personal finance, entrepreneurship, and real estate investing. I'm your host, David Perret, and together with my co-host, Alex Felice, we're here to be your no BS guides along the most important mission you'll ever embark on, your finances. Hey guys, if you're looking to take your investing, business, life, or just yourself to the next level, then I have something for you. The War Room Real Estate Military Mastermind Group is a mastermind group that meets weekly in small groups of five to six people to help you hold yourself accountable and really experience that growth. But we also have a monthly guest speaker that we bring in, and we've had guest speakers that talk about mindfulness, taxes, We're bringing in somebody to talk about marketing. We bring in very specific topics that will adhere to very broad, any any kind of real estate investing or investing or entrepreneurship that you want to do, and we'll really help you out. We let you ask these speakers questions and get very personal with them. And then back to the small groups, weekly accountability for what you're trying to achieve and just being surrounded by like-minded people. And they say your network is your net worth. I know that's an overused phrase, but I recommend that you check it out. So just shoot an email to wrmastermind at gmail.com. Once again, that's wrmastermind at gmail.com. And we'll send you some more information. Sure. Uh, I'm Brian Feraldi. I've been investing for about uh, 20 years uh, now. I'm just a huge stock market nerd, love everything about money, investing, personal finance. Uh, my preferred vehicle for building wealth is the stock market. It's the one that I understand best. It's the one that I've studied the most. Um, I think real estate is a fantastic asset class, but just not for me personally. Um, and I am a big uh, believer in investing in individual stocks, which I know goes contrary to what many people uh, say about investing. I am a huge fan of index funds. I think they're the right choice for 99% of people. But I do believe that if you have the time and inclination that picking, picking your own individual stocks can be a worthwhile endeavor if you enjoy the process uh, like like I do. Um, but uh, along my journey, I kind of become a big fan of helping other people to understand how the stock market works. Uh, hence the uh, the book that I wrote, which came out a couple months ago, which is all about the extreme basics of the stock market explained simply. Well, I think the joke that I made was about uh, PE. Actually, it wasn't even a joke. I was using Tesla as an example for why PE ratios are important. And you were able to articulate why Tesla is not as crazy as I thought. Right. So I was like, well, you know, the S&P 500 averages like 15 to 20 
uh, price to earnings ratio. And Tesla was at like, I think 1200 at some point in the last year. And I was laughing when everyone's like, Tesla's amazing. Buy in. And I was like, ah, the, the one metric that I understand says <laughs> no. In fact, I actually bought the Tulip Mania uh, poster and framed it and put it on my wall during that time. Um, and so I guess uh, we could probably pick up from there and, and see, uh, you know, what are the flaws in my logic? So I, I'm not going to make an argument for a second that te- Tesla is cheap. Like, that's not the point of anything that I was uh, saying. Uh, what the, the point of that discussion was, uh, I, I was uh, trying to point out that the P.E. ratio is a great metric when it works. And there are some companies, in fact, lots of companies that the P.E. ratio does not work on. That's not to say that the P.E. ratio is a bad metric. You just have to understand the phase that a company is in and how the company, how a company's growth cycle uh, works. So I'm going to put a little image uh, on, on screen here. Okay, so this is roughly speaking, not perfect depiction, but roughly speaking, what happens when a company goes from startup all the way through its decline phase. So this is the assumed growth path of an extremely successful uh, business, basically one that goes from like a startup to Dow component all the way until it's the decline phase. Um, during this, during after a company gets started, there's no valuation metric that you can use, right? When Apple was first getting started, it didn't have revenue, didn't have profits. So there was no PE ratio. There was no price to sales ratio. It was just an idea on a piece of paper. Once the idea is launched to market, that's when a company goes often goes through a very rapid growth phase when all resources at the company are devoted to grabbing customers, grabbing market share, and growing the top line. It's very common for companies that are on this stage of the game to actually be spending more money than they are taking in because they're hiring like crazy. Uh, lots of the successful growth companies today uh, go through this phase, this extended period when they're actually losing money. Now think about that. If they're losing money, what would the price to earnings ratio be? The earnings are negative, right? So the PE ratio is useless in this stage. As this company grows and matures and it starts to scale out, eventually, if it's successful, it reaches a break-even period when it's now bringing in enough revenue to cover its costs. So its, its earnings are now zero. That's a major improvement from earnings being negative uh, previously. During this phase, though, a company goes from being unprofitable to having a minuscule amount of profits. Now, if you were to see this in the market, what would the company's price-to-earnings ratio be? Earnings are teeny tiny. The price is likely to be high. So in this phase, it's common for these companies to have PE ratios of 1,000, 10,000, 500, whatever the number is. That's because the company is not yet optimized for profits. It's optimized for growth. However, as the company continues to scale out and its margins continue to rise, suddenly, eventually, it reaches enough scale where management shifts its focus from exclusively driving the top line higher to starting to focus on the bottom line. At this phase, the company's earnings power, the true earnings power of the company is finally on full display. And when a company's margin profile is fully optimized, now the earnings number is maximized and the price to earnings ratio suddenly becomes useful. 
The tricky thing that investors get, that the, the, the way that investors misuse the PE ratio is when the company's in phase one, phase two, or phase three, they look to the PE ratio, which is often negative or in the thousands or in the hundreds and say, overvalued. How, how could it be? The PE ratio of the S&P 500 is 15, 20, whatever. This is a thousand. It's overvalued. What they're doing is they're applying the wrong metric at the wrong time. So with Tesla uh, right now, Tesla is still in this phase three. It's still in the hyper growth phase. It is profitable, um, but it is um it is rapidly approaching the period that when it's, when it's profit margin is, is, is maximized. So here's the company's profit margin over the last, say, five years. So in 2020, this is a zero right here. This is when the company reached break even, 2020. So when you were looking at the PE ratio, you were looking here when the company just barely crossed over into the earnings mark. And, and this is when its PE ratio was, let's see, uh, a thousand, right? Because the earnings were so minuscule because it just crossed over into break even. Now, if we look at the company's profit margin, it's 14%. That means for every dollar in sales, Tesla is, is creating 14 cents, 14 pennies of profits. That's about as good as it's going to get. So right now, all of a sudden, the PE ratio is meaningful uh, for Tesla. So Tesla's PE ratio right now is about 110 when looking backwards and 73, 74 when looking forwards. So the PE ratio fell from 1,000 all the way down to 100 because the profits exploded higher because the company is now focused on bottom line profitability. So now the PE ratio is useful. So you can look at those PE ratios and saying overvalued. But previously, two years ago, when you did, it was simply too early. So just to clarify, when it was at a 1,200, it was useless. But when it's at 100, now you know it's overpriced? <laughs> uh, it, it's a more meaningful number. It, it, the PE ratio actually means, actually means something. Just teasing. Yes. I think this, yes. um, it's well fascinating. I think it does sort of bring some insight into why a lot of, you know, David and myself probably like real estate investing because the reality is real estate investing is a lot less complicated. It's not necessarily all better, but I know that my property mortgage is X and that the rent is going to be Y and I know what I'm going to make and I don't have to worry about whether I'm... There are ways to misuse metrics, but I don't think so as egregiously. Yeah. It's, it's not that Tesla is misusing a metric. It's just that you have to understand that mental model in order to do them correctly. And to your point, yeah, there are lots of benefits of investing in, in real estate. And to be fair, Tesla is probably the hardest company in the world to value just because its future potential, the, the range of outcomes from here are still incredibly wide. Uh, you, I could make the argument that this could be a $10 trillion company one day, and I could also make the argument it's going bankrupt in, in, in five years. Both of those are in the realm of possibility, all right? So the range of outcomes is is very, very wide. Uh, however, if you were lucky enough to find Tesla five, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, and make an investment, uh, the, the returns that you've gotten from it have been astoundingly, uh, astoundingly high, life-changingly uh, high. 10 grand invested in this company 10 years ago is, is, is yeah, a hundred bagger. <laughs> yeah. 
Here, awesome. Here's so, what I say. I'm, I'm not sure if this is 100% uh, correct, but according to Y charts, if you invested $10,000 10 years ago, it's worth $1.5 <laughs> No big deal. So, I mean, and to Alex's point, this is why not I don't invest in the stock market, right? Like I do, uh, but this is why I'm an index fund guy. Because when I start looking at the charts, and I've read, you know, uh, Oh, I'm drawing a blank on it. The Intelligent Investor. I've read a couple different books on, uh, you know, options trading and day trading just to try to get like an idea for the charts and and different stock market things. And every time I read them, I'm like, man, I am never going to spend enough time doing the due diligence on stocks to really justify this style of investing. So for me, the low fee index fund passive way is the way. Uh, but for those who are interested in actually understanding the fundamentals of stock markets and analysis on companies like what are some some of the basic metrics that you think people should start looking out for if they're looking to get into this yep and, and to your point david that means that you're in the 99 percent. that means that you are doing what the vast 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 majority of people that invest in the market should be doing which is just indexing uh indexing their their, their funds um and i fully support and um, Completely on board with that strategy. Dollar cost averaging plus index funds plus time equals the closest thing there is to automatic wealth building that I know of. But if you are interested in, uh, if you are in that 1% that actually enjoys the things that I'm talking about, actually likes digging into uh, to businesses, there's a number of, 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 of things that you have to look at when you're analyzing uh, a company. Uh, most people, especially beginners, they simply start out by looking at the price. So the only thing they focus on is what is the dollar price of one share end of due diligence. Or maybe it's, is it a company that I, uh, I've heard of, right? That was my due diligence when I, uh, f first started. Uh, but that, that is next to meaningless, uh, in information when, when, uh, judging the, um, the quality of, of a business. Uh, personally, I have a, um, uh, checklist that I have developed. It's about uh, 30 things that I look for in, in a business. And now I can take any company and kind of go down my list one at a time. Um, the same way I'm sure you guys do when you're investing in, in real estate. There are things you are looking for and there's things that you're trying to avoid. For me, it's the exact same thing with uh, investing. So I'm looking for, I'm looking for high revenue growth. I'm looking for stable and rising margins. I'm looking for free cash flow, looking for a strong balance sheet. I'm looking for a future that is much brighter than today. I'm looking for a management team that owns a lot of the stock that gets great reviews from employees. I'm looking for um, a company that uh, has zero customer concentration risk, meaning that they have thousands of customers, not a few big customers. Uh, I'm looking for the potential of that company to open up new business lines for itself down the road that open up new revenue opportunities. I'm looking for um, uh, profits and a company that consistently exceeds Wall Street estimates. And here's the most counterintuitive one. I'm looking for stocks that have already gone up, already beaten the market. I don't want stocks that have lost to the market. I want stocks that are outperforming the market over the last five years, and I believe will continue to do so. Can you give us some examples? Of companies that score well in my system? Sure, yeah. Sure. Uh, uh, all of the, uh, the FANG companies, so Facebook, Alphabet, uh, Google, et cetera, they tend to score uh, really well. I'll give you more of a, of a hidden one that not many people know. Uh, this is a company called Paycom. Uh, the ticker symbol is P-A-Y-C. Paycom is a company that's focused on 
payroll uh, processing. So they offer software to small and medium-sized businesses that helps them with payroll, benefits management, uh, HR functions, etc. They have been gobbling up market share away from the likes of ADP and Paychex for the last 20 years plus. The nice thing about being a payroll processor is that is a mission critical function for a, a company, right? That's not something that uh, that you screw up. And that is a repeat purchase business. Once once Paycom lands a customer, they tend to keep that customer for 10, 15, 20 years. So that's a reliable uh, revenue stream uh, for the company. Moreover, they have a history of launching new business lines into that business that not only make it harder for them to switch away, but also increase the revenue opportunity per customer that they sign up. Uh, this is a business that was started by um, a former ADP employee. He founded the business, still in charge. He's still the CEO today. This stock is up, I don't even know how many fold uh, since it came came public. Consistently growing its top line 20% plus. Great Glassdoor reviews, thousands upon thousands of employees, and still lots of market share uh, to, to gain. So when I first came across this company, I ran it through my checklist. It ticked damn near every box that I look for in a successful business. And I've been a happy shareholder for five plus years now. So how do you build a list to go through due diligence? Um, and let me give an example. So I want to buy a new property. So I'll go, if you're buying single family, maybe you go to the MLS, maybe you, you get wholesalers and you, you start getting lists of addresses and you start running them through, you know, pretty generic calculators. And then as you get closer, you do tighter and tighter due diligence. Um, if it's apartments, I can get a big co-star list and I can start going through properties. How do you do something similar where you're like, okay, there's, I don't know how many properties, uh, how many companies there are on the thousands. S&D. Yeah, thousands. <laughs> yeah. So how do I start getting a list how do you, to, to narrow yeah, down? How do you collect a list and, and start, you know, culling down to there's several ways to do so. Um, and I am a big fan of shortcuts. Uh, so one very simple way to do so is to find great investors that I myself admire, that have long track records that invest the way I do, and I peek at their portfolio. And I say, what do they own? Many of them uh, are many uh, mutual fund managers that I respect. And boy, is that a small number of, of individuals. Um, they have to publish their holdings every 90 days. And I have alerts set up that whenever they publish holdings, uh, they come into my inbox and I dig through them and I see if anything's new uh, in there. If there's something new that passes their criteria... There's a good starting point uh, to go through. Uh, there's also a lot of ETFs, exchange-traded funds, that are similar things. For example, if you were interested in cybersecurity, there's an ETF out there that I'm pretty sure the ticker is H-A-C-K, HACK, which is pretty clever. Um, and that is a fund that owns 20, 30-ish cybersecurity uh, companies. You can go through there and get a list of, of tickers and start picking through the, the answers there. There's other uh, exchange-traded funds that do something uh, similar. There's even famous uh, fund managers like Kathy Wood uh, and the ARC funds. They, own, they have like five or six funds. And whatever you think of their style and their performance, um, there's a great list of potential growth stocks to start digging through. It came out this week. I'm going to throw a curveball at you, maybe, hopefully. It came out this week that uh, famed investor, contrarian investor, Michael Burry, sold his mm -hmm. entire US stock portfolio, except for $3 million, into a private prison fund. Um, are you following this advice? Is this something you're going to emulate? <laughs> 
No, that's not something that I do. He makes macro calls and he's been pretty darn good at making macro calls uh, in, in the past. Uh, Ray Dalio does too. He makes macro calls uh, like that. And most people, I think, are forgetting that this is actually the second time. This is the second time Michael Burry has done that this year. Uh, so actually in the first quarter, when his 13F came out, he sold everything that he owned except for one stock, CBS. And that seems to be forgotten. And that was just six months ago. And then he bought back in uh, everything. And then he seems to have done it again. So he is a far more active trader than, than I would be. And while he has a track record that is enviable, that's not something that I'm interested in doing. Uh, I'm interested in almost like building my own index fund. I'm, I'm interested in buying and holding great businesses, holding them for long, long, long periods of time. And that's how I'm happy to accumulate wealth. And boy, has that been a bad strategy in 2022 because everything has pretty much gone straight down. Uh, but I am personally convinced that I want the most of my money in stocks for the, the long term. And I accept that that's going to feel awful, awful occasionally. All right. So let's name drop. Uh, who are some of the people that you look to, right? Are you, are you a Dalio fan? We brought him into the equation. I love his books. Um, is, is that somebody that you seek to emulate or, or like who are, oh man. Is, yeah. I listen to Ray Dalio. His, his, his books are great. His, his principles are pretty good. He's pretty bearish on a lot of things, uh, right, right now. And that's not, I'm, I'm interested in his take and he manages billions of dollars, but I am still personally uh, invested heavily in the stock market and will continue to be so uh, for a long period uh, of time. Uh, there's a couple of under the radar um, uh, fund managers that I like. One is named Chuck Aker. A-K-R-E. He manages a fund called Acre uh, Focused Fund. He is a long-term investor in, in great businesses. And if you look at his long-term track record, he is one of those very, very few fund managers that has consistently outperformed the market over long periods of time. So he is someone I get there uh, 13Fs on. Another is uh, Pat Dorsey. Pat Dorsey is the former uh, head of research at Morningstar. He literally wrote the book on competitive advantage, wonderful book called The Little Book That Beats the Market. He is now a fund manager. He, he operates a fund that has, I think, 10, maybe 12 companies uh, in it that can, that, um, high growth, a lot of the things that I look for. So I have alert set up for, uh, for him. And then there's a guy named Terry Smith. Uh, he is at a fund called Fundsmith, which is out in, uh, England, another high quality investor, investment very similar that I do. All in all, there's like eight, Eight of these people that uh, that I that I follow and track, and that is just one way of of getting uh, information. I think this is good sort of life advice. I figured out a while back about books. I only like read books from a small select people that I'm like, oh, they, these guys are they their whatever their worldview is aligns with my worldview, and it sort of sounds like that's what you're saying. You know, find your style and then find people who um, align with that style and you know the best in their craft and then especially nowadays like with twitter oh my god you can hear what they you can you can go listen to these people they don't they don't even have to write books they tweet you know all their thoughts you can learn from them and then um you know you said watching their they have to publish their trades or their holdings so you can go and actually see where their money is which i love uh so yeah that's a i, I really identify with that advice i like that advice and one other thing that's worth noting is if uh, there's lots of ways to invest in any 
asset class, right? In, in, in stocks, there are, uh, people that trade nanosecond by nanosecond. There's also investors that invest for the long term. There's investors that invest for the sh- long term by primarily focusing on valuation. There's others that pr- invest primarily focusing on growth. Uh, one, th- one, uh, thing that, uh, I've gotten in trouble to in the past is you can't take advice from value investors if you're a growth investor. Conversely, you should not listen to growth investors if you are a value in- investor. Find people that invest the way that you want to advise and take their advice and ignore everything else because the principles that apply to value investing don't work when it comes to growth investing and vice versa. So the, a large portion of our audience are young service members. And I have a feeling, I don't know this, but there's probably a lot of get rich fast, you know, anxiety in the air. How does somebody, do you have any tips for somebody on like thinking, how do they find their style? Are they a value investor? Are they a long-term buy and hold? Do they want to day, day trade? Do you, I don't know if it's kind of off the cuff. Do you have any advice that to say like, Hey, how do you find your style? And then like sort of stick with it. Well, the only way that you can actually find your, your style is to actually do it and, and see what it's like to do it. If you asked anybody, what is your investing style in 2020? The answer was high growth, uh, buy it, anything I see on Reddit, because that worked. Anything you bought. In fact, the riskier the thing that you bought in 2020, the better you did the better you did. So the lesson that a lot of people learned and millions of people started investing for the first time in 2020 was buy anything rewarded instantaneously. And it's really easy in that kind of environment to tell yourself, I can handle volatility. I'm in this for the long term. I I, I like stocks. It's an entirely different thing when that same strategy is not working and everything you buy is going down. Not just once, not just one day, not just one week, but week after week, month after month. So I would say now from, from 20, from 2020 to now, we've seen a huge rise and a huge fall and ask yourself, what kind of investor are you now? How much volatility can you handle now? Now that the bad is, is behind us and maybe ahead of us, who knows what kind of volatility can you actually handle. And if you can't handle it and you just want to invest in real estate, or if you want to put money, more of your money into conservative assets, that's fine. But it's, it's incredibly important that you learn what you are actually capable of doing. As some, some asshole named Alex keeps saying on this podcast, there's a whole lot of people running around this world talking about coaching programs and stuff because they made a 10% ROI in a 30% <laughs> up market. And they think they've convinced themselves they're brilliant. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of uh, die hard believers of cryptocurrency and GameStop that it was easy to believe in when there's a 1300% rise and you're like, I'm in it for life. And then when it's down 90%, you know, life starts, you know, I need money now. <laughs> life changed. Uh, it's kind of like you said earlier about the Tesla thing. You know, I've owned Tesla twice, three times. I've made money on it half those times, something like that. Um, it's, it's, you say, Hey, if you owned it $10,000 10 years ago and you just held it, you'd be, you know, one point something million. Um, life, life comes along and it, it, there's a lot of emotions that you have to think about and endure. There's an old argument too, this, a similar argument where it's like, Hey, if you bought $500 worth of Coca-Cola in 1912 or whatever it was, it'd be worth however many millions and millions, but you got to hold that money through two world wars and, 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 uh, and a depression and a recession. And so it's not so easy 
to go through the volatility and just patiently hold you, when you, especially nowadays with the phone where you can just on a whim, you can sell. Yep. It's, it's, it's never been better to be an investor because of the information you have access to, all the tools that you have, the fees you have to pay. And it's never been harder to be an investor because if you set up your phone the wrong way, that price information will be in your face all the time. I can't imagine if I had price alert notifications turned on on my phone or on my email, I, I wouldn't be able to do anything because it would just be nonstop pinging me with information, 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 take action. You, uh, I, I, I rarely actually check stock prices, which, which confuses some people. Like uh, if you ask me what happened in the market today, I actually don't know. I have not looked. What the market does on any given day or week is irrelevant to my to my long term uh, to long term strategy. But that is something that um, uh, I've had to learn the hard way. When I first started out, I was checking stock prices multiple times a day, just like many people are are today. Um, but again, so in, in being saying that you can handle volatility and saying that you can invest in theory and actually doing it in reality when everything is red and the headlines are negative are two completely different things. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that I can, without looking at the market at all, I can tell what direction the market's going by my Facebook group because if I hear absolutely nothing, the market's going up. And the moment it starts to drop, there's like 50 different posts in there about like, do I need to move my money to the G fund? Is my TSP like, what do I do? Where do I, oh my God, how do you guys hold on? And it's like, just, just calm just calm down. But like I can, by the requested posts in the group, I can, t I can tell you on any given week, like, you know, I, I could use that more than my actual research. I don't look at the same thing. I'm like, eh, it's index funds. The opposite is true for scams. Out. When the scams are making a lot of money, you hear from them a lot. When they stop making <laughs> yeah. money, they go away. Like I haven't gotten a Bitcoin request in months now. Mm, that's <laughs> but, valid. But in 21 and 20, it was just like nonstop in my inbox spam and nonsense. And uh, the same thing's going to go with the coaching. The coaching calls and the and the courses and make money in real estate and you know it didn't exist in 08 because it was collapsing and you know i'm not saying it'll collapse but when the things come down then all of the you know the easy money will clear out mm -hmm. you got it now one other thing i did want to point out um the the way that i deal with volatility i i have a very high um, uh, ability to withstand volatility. But the reason I can do that isn't because I'm a psychopath or anything like that. The reason I can do that is because I consider my personal finances and my um, investing finances to be essentially two completely different things. I'm a huge fan of the barbell uh, method. So my personal investing style is to have, is to have just got extremely conservative personal finances extremely conservative, right? So zero debt, multiple sources of income, high savings rate, six months of, uh, of cash in the bank, all that kind of stuff. That affords me, exactly, the anti-fragile anti -fragile, uh, <laughs> mindset. Uh, that affords me the ability to not care what kind of volatility I'm experiencing in my investing portfolio because it in no way impacts my day-to-day -day life. In no way. Um, if, if you're constantly checking stock prices and you're investing money in there because you're going to be buying a house with it or buying a car with it, or you, you have a plan for that money in the next five days or five months, 
first off, that money should not be in the stock market. But second off, I can totally understand how you would check prices every day and you would freak out when they, when they were down because you're, you're betting your personal finances on the stock market. And the stock market doesn't care about when you need the returns. It, it, it's agnostic to what you need to happen in the time frame you need it to happen. The stock market is for long-term capital and long-term capital only. Um, can you explain what the barbell method is? It's something that I, is, I hold it near and dear to my heart. I, I try to, I try to live it. It's not that easy. Uh, it gets easier as you get better at it. But can you explain it to somebody who doesn't know? Yeah, the barbell method is essentially the th think of the shape of a barbell, right? It's like two ends, uh, and those two things are are, are two extremes. Uh, the actual uh, barbell method or anti-fragile uh, investing is basically you want the majority of your capital in extremely conservative, in extremely conservative things. So the way that I interpret that is again my personal finances, uh, my checking account, um, my 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 income, my debt levels are are all extremely conservative, just extremely conservative. And conversely, because of that extreme conservatism on, on one side of the barbell, that allows me to take withstand and, and take on uh, much higher levels of risk than, than um, other people are, are comfortable with. So I, I personally own zero bonds. Zero. I have no interest in, in owning bonds for the next couple of decades uh, because I, I don't need the, 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 um, the volatility reduction of bonds uh, to, to, to do well because I can withstand huge amounts of volatility uh, in my portfolio. So that's like two, two ends of the extreme uh, and it's called, it's called the barbell method. Okay. So I've got an, an odd one for you just because, and this might be kind of circling back, but uh, because we talked about you being a very long-term holder and we've talked about analyzing companies and whatever, at what point do you, are you okay, comfortable with deciding to sell a stock or company even instead of going the long-term? And, and I ask that with the framing that if, if you look at the S&P 500, and I'm going to mess up the stats on this, but I think something like 80 or 85% of it has changed over in the last like 30, 40 years, right? So even the top 500 companies in the country you know, rise and fall and decline and whatever. So at what point in your, with a, with a company, like what kind of things do you look for when you're like, Ooh, I was going to hold this one for a long time, but something changed time to exit and go into this other one long-term. Um, because that does happen sometimes. Sure does. Um, so there are broadly speaking, 11 reasons that I will sell. Um, we don't have to cover them all, but I will cover number one, which is the most important one, which is I was wrong. The reason that I bought a company Right. I'm buying a company because I believe it has the following opportunity, the following management team, the following uh, potential. And something comes along that that disproves my, my thesis for doing so. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I was an investor in Grubhub. Uh, Grubhub at the time was the number one market share leader in food delivery. It was run by its founder. It was profitable. It was growing very, very rapidly and it had a huge market opportunity ahead. What I said to myself was that I think this is going to be a winner take most market where the, the, um, food delivery app with the most customers is going to attract the most restaurants and the most restaurants, the app with the most restaurants is going to attract the most customers. So I thought Grubhub had a durable competitive advantage. That was the crux of my thesis. Well, within one year of me making my thesis uh, in that, along comes a DoorDash. 
And DoorDash utterly took massive amounts of market share uh, in, in that industry. So I thought that Grubhub would be immune to competition due to those network effects. What I got wrong was diners don't care about how many diner, how many restaurants are in the network. They care about how many restaurants are in their local area. So the network effect is not nationwide, it's hyper-localized. In other words, my initial analysis was wrong. <laughs> That's, I, I just want to, I have to process this, I don't really have a comment, but it is interesting how these sort of top-down systemic nationwide app companies, Uber, Airbnb, they do have local geographic problems that are very that are harder to assess when you're looking at it as a whole. Yep. And after I made my investment in Grubhub, um, within two or three quarters, they all of a sudden said, um, we have to rapidly ramp up our marketing spend. They went from being profitable to being unprofitable. And I didn't know what was happening. And only later did I find out, I found this great chart. Uh, I'll see if I can find it. But essentially, it shows market share by each category. And DoorDash just like grabbed the entire market. Right, DoorDash just blew out ev everybody else. I don't still fully understand what they did that was so different that allowed them to do so, but they just out-executed every other uh, delivery company. So that's a case where I sold my Grubhub at a loss once I realized I thought this company was the top dog. It's not. I was wrong. Sell, learn my lesson, and I learned an important lesson about network effects and re redeploy that into something else. This is... um. This is a good insight, though, into how active this is for you, because not only are you looking for the next buy, you, you're following up and you're, you're having to make sure that the buys, the holdings that you already have, you have to reassess periodically and make sure that they're not getting outcompeted and they're still on their trajectory. Uh, another reason why, just to you know, plug real estate, it's like I never think about the houses I already own. They're running. They're making money. All I have to think about is the next acquisition. Um, but that is a good insight into how active you are on this. Well, it also depends on when it comes to that. That's a big question that I get. How much time does this, does this take? Which is perfectly fair, by the way. Again, hence why if you don't enjoy this, you should not do it. If this is homework, if this feels like a chore, index, period, index. It, 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 you should, this, this is why I said 1% of people should do this because 1% of people find this to be fun. 1% of people enjoy uh, keeping up with companies the way that I do. Can, I'd like to add that that's just good life advice. Um, there's a lot of people who look at you know, a lot of celebrities or like famous investors and like, I want to be that or I want to be rich, say I want money. And then they go off and they do the thing that they saw that they were enamored with. And then they find out that they're terrible at it because it doesn't really fit their personality. And it's not easy in life to find things to do that are deeply aligned with your personality. And then um, hopefully, you know, a lot of times you find out things that you are good at. They're not always that profitable. So it's it's really... um it's really an interesting process to, like you said, I, I would be very bored by this. I don't want to do this day trading. I want to I buy the ETF. I buy it regularly. I don't think about it. It makes me money. It works. And for the same reason where I'm like, oh, I just want to, I want to buy. I want to sit on it. I don't want to think about it. It'll work out. Houses, same way. Um, but it really is a good insight into like, hey, if you can find out what you do enjoy doing, and then, you know, hopefully you can find a way to make it profitable. That's way better than trying to force something because if it is a chore, you're going to, um, you're going to be lousy at it. It's hard enough to beat the market. Right. 
Um, so, and, and to, to answer your point though, the, um, the way that I personally invest is I, ha- I own dozens of companies and I try and front road front front load all of the work, uh, meaning I focus all of my energy or the vast majority of my energy on what companies am I interested in owning for the long term. And then I buy those companies and then I largely sit back and let them execute. And I just know that one, if I, if I stick to my process consistently, I'm going to be surprised both on the good way and on the bad way. But I know going in, if I buy 10 stocks, that roughly speaking, four of them will do lose money, like in absolute terms, maybe even five uh, will, will lose money. But four of them will do uh, okay. And one of them will do so well that it pays for all the losses that I make along the way, which by the way, is exactly how the index fund works. The index fund works the exact same way. People just don't realize it because it's all rolled up into one number. Yeah, that's another, uh, well, I, I know it from Taleb where, uh, you know, he says this thing where he, he goes, yeah, nine, they say 99% of options traders lose money. And it's like, right. But how much do the 1% make that make money? Do they make enough to cover all the losses? Because then it's worth it. And so it's not about winning all the time. It's about, you know, winning big enough to cover the losers. Essentially, is that, is that sort of right? Similar. Basically with, with, let's say there's a thousand publicly traded companies. Um, most people, myself included, used to think 50% of them go up, 50% of them go down. And that's how the market works. Nope. Uh, if, if for a thousand traded companies, about 66% of them will go down and underperform the index, 34% of them will do better than the index. And about 7% of them will account for 90% of the gains. 7% of them will account for 90% of the games. This is why Bogle has always said, don't look for the needle in the haystack, just buy the haystack, which is why that's a perfectly viable uh, strategy. You're guaranteed to get these few extreme winners uh, in your portfolio and they're offset all of the losers, which is why the market goes up over time. It's like the Jeff Bezos quote that business is like baseball in that, you know, you strike, you strike out a lot, you get thrown out at first base a lot, da, 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 da. But every now and then you hit a grand slam. And the difference is that in baseball, you can only hit four runs off that grand slam. And in business, every now and then you'll score a hundred, a hundred or a thousand runs off that, you know? And so it's, it's exactly that. If you have enough in the portfolio, then, you know, and if you can hedge the, the downside and hedge the risk, then, you know, whatever. But uh, for, for I just want to throw out there for anyone listening to this and doesn't know what index funds are or how that works. Uh, we did an episode a little while ago with uh, JL Collins, who wrote The Simple Path to Wealth, and it does a great job going into detail on index funds. Um, and unfortunately, Brian, we're uh, getting kind of close to cutting it because uh, one, of, well, one of us has to rush to the airport. Um, so uh, I would just like to ask uh, if there's any closing thoughts, uh, things that you think are like super important that you'd like to hit on real quick. And then if you could plug your book and where people can get a hold of you if they'd like to hear more. Sure. Uh, to, to me, the number one thing that I uh, teach in, in the book is that uh, for the vast majority of people, just put your money in index funds, call it a day. Dollar cost averaging uh, plus patience plus index funds uh, plus consistently contributing is, is the magic formula for wealth building uh, in, in the stock market. And the, tricky, the funny thing about that is if that's your strategy, you should be actively rooting, rooting for the stock market to go down. 
to go down, which is so backwards to what people uh, think. Because if you're a net accumulator uh, of stocks, uh, you you want to get them as cheaply as as possible. Um, but if you can have, if you can invest with a long term mindset consistently uh, into the market, I'm very confident. Ten years from now, twenty years from now, thirty years from now, you're gonna have a smile on your face. Have you ever heard the joke that the stock market is the only place that when everything goes on sale, people leave the store? Of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's very, it's very true. Everybody wanted to invest. Everybody wanted, interest in investing was at an all time high in October and November of 2020. Uh, right now, all those people that all of a sudden were interested are, think that the market's the worst thing ever. And that's just, that's just human psychology. Real, that's just real how estate it works. is very similar, especially now that transactional like efficiency has gone up. Like last year, prices are at, you know, all time highs. And people are like, buy as much real estate as possible. And then now, you know, as the market softens, people are like, eh, real estate. I'm like, now is when I'm starting to get excited. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Right. Very, you have to be very, uh, not very, but I definitely think that there's a bit of contrarianism in, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the more active of an investor you are, the more you have to be a little contrarian. Mm -hmm. Which is very easy to say, very hard to do. Very, yeah. You literally have to go against the entire, your entire social circle and public opinion. Right. Yeah. Right. David's got to go into his Facebook group and when everyone's freaking out, you got to say, Hey, I'm going to buy. There you go. <laughs> That's it. Off the market. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. I, I appreciate it. I'm, you know, this is fun for me because the stock market and individual stocks is just not something that I'm super well versed in. And so it's always fun to hear new takes on it and learn new things. So thanks for coming on the show, brother. And uh, I will definitely link to your book in the show notes. Oh, Alex has a thing. Can I get a signed copy of this book? How do I get that? How do I make that happen? Sure. Send me an email. Thank you. There you go. Let's thanks so much it. for having me. It's awesome to be here and great chatting with you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from military to millionaire.com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show, give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.